This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Marissa Silver read her story, Tiny Meaningless Things, which appeared in the October 24, 2022 issue of the magazine. Silver is the author of seven books of fiction, including the story collection Alone With You and the novels Little Nothing and The Mysteries, which was published last year. Now here's Marissa Silver. Tiny Meaningless Things Wednesday is ironing day, a day of smoothness, the pleasing embryonic smell of wet heat, and the satisfactions of erasure. How rewarding it is, Evelyn thinks, to work the tip of the iron into the wrinkled underarms of her favorite blouses and watch their instant transformation into material that is fresh and untried. Now that she is 74 and her skin has lost its elasticity, this trick of reversing time is no longer available to her. It's like a head of wilted lettuce, she thinks, as she mists the blouse with water. All you have to do is put it in ice water and it springs back to life. These were lessons she tried to impart to her daughters, the proper way to store vegetables, to fold clothing, to wash their faces, never soap, only water. They hadn't listened, of course. They couldn't imagine decay. Her daughters' bored or frankly antagonistic responses to her attempts to make them understand the value of preservation had agitated her, and she'd repeated her warnings two or maybe three times until they screamed or slammed doors. They were young. How could they know the disaster of carelessness? She knew. She'd been at her cousin's wedding in Tulsa when her husband died so long ago. The doctor had told her that it would be safe to take those days off from her vigil, that Frank had a while yet. Naomi and Ruth were away at school, Naomi and Lincoln, Ruth all the way east at a private college that had given her a scholarship to ensure her sharp and critical company. It had been up to Paula to keep tabs on her father that weekend. Evelyn paid for a nurse to come in during the day, all Paula had to do was peek in the bedroom once or twice before she went to bed, just to make sure that her father was sleeping easily. It wasn't a lot to ask of a 16-year-old who had stayed awake late into the night, whispering on the phone to boys. Evelyn had been surprised that Paula hadn't complained. That had touched her, and she'd thought that perhaps now that Paula's sisters were gone and she was no longer the youngest, alternately teased or ignored, she was beginning to feel the grown-up pleasures of responsibility. Evelyn had left phone numbers for people Paula could call should anything be amiss, Dr. Barnes and Vivian Branch next door. She'd left the number of the house where she'd be staying. But Paula hadn't called anyone. She hadn't even checked on her father when she came home from the party she'd promised to forego. The next morning, when the nurse called Evelyn, she said that Frank had been gone for some time. Evelyn hadn't asked how long. She didn't want to know if the nurse had found him with his mouth agape, didn't want to imagine that he'd been that way for hours, his final call unheard. Paula was still asleep, the nurse said. Should she wake her? 
Thursday is the day when Evelyn clears the refrigerator of those vegetables that have been in the bins long past cold water's ability to revive them, when she tosses the slices of turkey that have acquired a slick, iridescent sheen. She eats less now than she used to, but she hasn't gotten used to grocery shopping with that in mind. She watches the women who roam the aisles gripping baskets barely weighted with a single chicken breast, two oranges, a child-sized carton of milk meant for lunchboxes, walking advertisements for precarity. Who wants to die alone in her apartment and be left undiscovered for enough time that the smell of soured milk would be the giveaway? And here was another piece of advice her daughters had ignored. Always wear a good pair of underwear and a matching bra which was the opposite kind of warning, she realizes, aimed not at longevity, but at the possibility of dying suddenly and violently and being discovered with your skirt up around your ears in a pair of sad panties. Friday, she vacuums, which, like ironing, is a kind of vanishing, this time accompanied by the obliterating sound of her old hoover. She sometimes thinks of the machine as sentient, the way the motor excitedly revs up when it encounters a density of crumbs, the greedy crackling as the throat of the hose sucks down a pebble she's tracked in on the bottom of her awful-looking, but yes, sturdy, crepe soles. The indignities are everywhere. How's the wash going, Mom? Ruth might ask if she calls on a Tuesday. The familiarity is meant to be a gentle tease, but Evelyn knows that her daughters can't fathom how their mother can create enough mess to warrant this constant cycle of chores. It gives her something to do, she once heard Naomi whisper to Ruth when they were visiting together. She wanted to tell them that jobs, marriage, child-rearing, all of it is just something to do. But she kept quiet. No more warnings. It's when she's ironing the collar of her favorite lilac-colored blouse that she senses Scotty outside the apartment door. She's told him many times that he needs to ring the doorbell, or at least knock, but he never does. It doesn't matter, really. She always knows when he's there. She senses a hovering. She lays the iron in its cradle and goes to the door. There he is, swallowed up by his baseball uniform, which is spotless, even though she knows he's coming from practice. She knows his summer schedule by now. She imagines him on the field, mitt dangling at his side, staring at a bug in the grass or at a cloud, while the other seven-year-olds yell that the ball is heading his way. She's certain that he doesn't care if he misses a catch. Scotty seems uninterested in his childhood. He's marking time, waiting for these years to pass, if possible, without his participation. He's skinny and his ears stick out. His bangs fall into his eyes no matter how often he brushes or blows them away. Despite his slightness, there is a weight about him, a somber gravity. She knows not to greet him enthusiastically or to use those endearments which adults so often bestow on children they barely know. Something about Scotty doesn't invite intimacy. Better for her to behave as if he were a worker clocking in for his shift. He stands, as he always does, at the threshold, waiting for her to walk a few steps into the room before he follows. He doesn't close the door behind him, so she doubles back to do it. This bit of choreography has become so routine that she no longer notices it, although at first it irritated her. She assumed that he was one of those children whose parents cut their food or tie their shoelaces well beyond the age when that type of interference is necessary. She once watched a news program about a man who was released from prison after serving 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. The reporter followed the man around as he tried to get used to the free world. When the man reached a door, the front door of his home, say, or the door of the local bar, he would simply stop and wait for someone else to open it for him. For decades, he had not been allowed to open a door and walk through it on his own. 
It was this detail that made Evelyn understand that he'd lost something more fundamental than time. No, Scotty isn't spoiled. He asks for nothing and expects nothing. He goes into her bedroom, humming quietly to himself. He often sings, narrating his activity as it's happening in high-pitched, wandering tunes that he makes up as he goes. We're folding the sheets, he might sing. We're watering the plants. He doesn't seem to be aware of his habit, and she doesn't point it out. She's touched by his lack of inhibition. She counts this as a measure of his comfort, and more than that, proof of something about her that is intrinsically good. Children know what's what. Children and dogs. Now Scotty's singing about hangers, and when he reappears, he's holding an armload of them. On Wednesdays, it's his job to put the pressed clothing back in her closet. She's taught him how to think of the hanger as a pair of shoulders so that he can properly arrange a blouse to hold its shape, how to fix a skirt on clips, or hang a pair of slacks so that the crisply iron seams match up. He's too small to reach the hanging rod, so she keeps a step stool next to the closet for him. Forty-five minutes can go by with them barely speaking to each other, an occasional here-you-go when she hands him a piece of clothing. They finish their work, and Scotty sits at the kitchen table eating a piece of cinnamon toast. She made it for him once, and now he prepares it himself, getting the loaf from the bread box, toasting a slice, spreading the butter, sprinkling just the right amount of cinnamon and sugar on it so that it tastes sweet rather than bitter. He holds the toast with both hands and takes small bites around each of the four sides before starting the circuit again. Finally, he's left with a morsel at the center, where the toast is most thoroughly soaked in butter and spice. She admires his patience. Most children would finish off the toast in a few bites, but Scotty is not most children. She knows almost nothing about him. She doesn't know when his birthday falls or the name of his school, his favorite color, or the name of his little brother. She doesn't know what he wants to be when he grows up. It would embarrass them both for her to ask the condescending questions adults normally come up with to pretend they're interested in children's lives. The crudity of superficial intimacy would make what goes on between them inconsequential. No, her relationship with Scotty is something else. It is unencumbered by the baggage of the past or by other attachments. They exist for each other only during the time when Scotty helps her with her chores and eats his toast. He finishes the last bite and slides off his chair. She follows him to the door, opens it, and watches him walk to the far end of the hallway where he disappears into his apartment. She closes her door feeling a little bit wholesome, a little bereft. It's only later when she's changing for bed that she notices that Scotty has rearranged her closet, putting her dresses on the left side, the skirts to their right, and then her slacks, and finally the blouses. She had organized her clothes in reverse order, based on use. She almost always wears pants and blouses these days. Skirts are for the infrequent lunch out. Dresses are for funerals. She wonders what compelled Scotty to make the change. Is this the way his mother's closet is set up? She's seen the woman only in the hallway or in the garage. She's always overburdened with children or grocery bags or pails and shovels if she's taken her boys to the park. She dresses in shorts and tennis shoes, heedless of her cellulite. She doesn't seem like a woman who has time to worry about how her closet looks. Once, earlier in the summer, just after Scotty started coming over, Evelyn shared an elevator with his mother. They acknowledged each other with nods. The woman didn't mention Scotty's visits or ask if Evelyn minded the intrusion. Evelyn took this as an insinuation that an old lady should be happy for the company of a small, odd boy. She was about to say something to clarify who was doing a favor for whom, but then she noticed that the woman's blouse was buttoned wrong, 
and that her bra showed where the material puckered. Evelyn touched her own blouse the way she might touch her lip to let a friend know about a crumb, but it didn't work. When they reached the garage and went in separate directions to find their cars, Evelyn felt anxious. The woman was going to go out in public looking like that. Throughout the afternoon, she thought of Scotty's mother at the market or in line at the bank, and her concern for the woman turned to anger. If she'd only noticed Evelyn's warning, she would have avoided that humiliation. Evelyn is about to put the clothes back the way she likes them, but stops. Scotty, who speaks only when spoken to, who eats his snack with solemn reverence, is communicating something with this rearrangement. Even if she can't grasp his meaning, she feels the interior charge of a shared secret. It's Saturday, and Scotty helps her with the dusting. With his step stool, he can reach the top of the refrigerator and the lintels above the door with the chamois cloth. He hasn't yet begun the alternating puff and stretch she noticed in her girls when they were about his age, the way they would amass weight around their middles right before a growth spurt, as if they needed a store of energy in order to blast off. She doesn't know about boys, though. Their bodies don't swell and shrink on a monthly schedule. For a boy, growing seems like a less conditional enterprise. There's a dull honesty to it. The bodies of girls are deceptions that they learn to control so they can use them to their advantage. This was something she'd never advised her daughters about. She didn't have to. As Scotty follows her around the apartment, he hums one of his little tunes. He sings a word or two about a dust bunny he finds under the bed, or about passing the white glove test, which is something she once told him about. Of course, she doesn't use a white glove. She doesn't even own a pair. Who would these days? But he was captivated by the idea, probably because she told him it was a custom at Buckingham Palace, which was something that might not be true but sounded true. She tries always to be straightforward with Scotty, but sometimes she can't resist the look on his face when he reconsiders her and wonders what further mysteries she might contain. When they're done with the living room and the bedroom, they go into the den. It irks her that the grass cloth above the television console is lighter where the portrait of Burl's racehorse once hung. She didn't keep her second husband around long enough for him to make much of an impression on other rooms in the apartment, but the den gets direct sunlight, and the reverse stain feels like a rebuke. He was so angry when she said she wanted a divorce. She was surprised by that, somehow having imagined that he'd take it all in the genial manner in which he took most things. He'd done nothing wrong. He hadn't changed. He hadn't cheated. He adored her. But she'd never believed in his ardor. Maybe that was the problem. Frank had been gone for nearly three decades, but another man's professions of love still sounded phony. She'd begun to hope that when she returned home after a day at work, Burl wouldn't be there. She couldn't bear the triviality of their life together. The fridge is making that sound again, meant that he was going to hoist himself out of his chair with his customary grunt, put his shoulder to it, and give it a silencing shove. I sense an egg roll coming on, meant that he wanted to go to Golden Palace for dinner. Living with Burl was a daily reminder that most of the ways people invented to fill up time were harrowingly insignificant. That was the explanation, wasn't it, she thinks now as Scotty moves things off the television console, dusts the wood, and puts the magazines and the ashtray and the photographs of her grandchildren back exactly as they were. She couldn't keep up the pretense that any of it mattered. In the kitchen, when Scotty takes the last bite of his toast, she pulls a dollar from her purse and puts it on the table next to his plate. That's for you. She's never given him money before. Why? If someone wants you to do a job, they should pay you for it. But anyone could help you. But I don't let just anyone help me. I let you. 
He stares at the dollar for another moment before he takes it, stands, and heads to the front door. As she opens it, she moves to block his passage. She feels the same welling anxiety that threatened when her daughters ignored her advice. Scotty, what I'm trying to tell you is that if you don't put a value on yourself, no one else will. People will take advantage of you. It's not nice, but that's just the way the world works. Do you understand? Okay, he says, which is a maddening non-answer, the kind that only increases her apprehension, her sense that this vital piece of information has not been understood, and that she has not prevented him from making terrible mistakes in the future. But she moves aside and lets him leave. She closes the door after him. Her heart is beating fast. It's horrible to care. An eyeglass chain is the first thing that goes missing. She hasn't thought about it for years, but the minute it's gone, she notices. She looks at the now-empty saucer on her bureau, where the chain lived, coiled and unused. When she'd first seen it at the drugstore, it seemed like a reasonable idea, even cheeky in the way that it suggested a librarian-like efficiency while, at the same time, drawing the eye toward her chest, where the glasses were dangling. She wasn't too old to enjoy that, but it turned out that it was annoying to have her glasses bouncing against her all day, and she didn't like the inference that she was forgetful. The next thing that is gone is a pack of tissues from the cabinet under the bathroom sink. She only just opened a pack of six that she bought at the drugstore. She put one in her purse, and now there are four left. She always keeps one with her to blot her lipstick. Oh, how Frank used to tease her about her lipstick. They'd be in a movie theater, and right in the middle of a dramatic scene, she'd take out the tube of her favorite red and redo her lips. Vanity, thy name is Evelyn, he'd tease her. But over time, she could see that he found her habits a comfort, just as she took solace from the way he stored his shoes upright, leaning against the wall like tired men waiting for a bus. There are some things so irrational they simply take your breath away. The disappearances continue. A handful of Q-tips, one of the cedar blocks she keeps at the back of her closet to deter moths, a thumbnail-sized shell from the small collection that sits on the rim of the bathtub to remind her of all those winters she spent in Florida. Nothing that's gone missing is worth anything. The eyeglass chain was made of plastic and cost only a few dollars. On her last visit, Ruth had told her to get rid of it, but that was a different generation talking. Evelyn's daughters had been trained by advertising to throw out perfectly good things and replace them with the new and the not much improved. Now look, Evelyn says in silent conversation with her absent daughter, it turns out that the eyeglass chain was useful after all. It was something for Scotty to steal. Because of course it's Scotty. Who else could it be? She and Scotty are the only two people who've set foot in her apartment all summer. She isn't angry. Could a person feel angry about Q-tips? Maybe he misunderstood when she paid him the dollar and thought she'd given him a broader permission. At any rate, she thinks, children are as devious as adults. They lie, they steal, they covet and take what they need. They are ruthless when it comes to relationships. She saw Paula at eight or nine in the schoolyard tell her best friend that she hated her. The girl's mother was standing nearby, so Evelyn gave Paula a smack and made her apologize to the tearful girl. But Paula's apology was bitter and unconvincing. Her hatred was genuine, and Evelyn's anger quickly turned into something approximating awe. She felt as if she were witnessing something both hideous and marvelous, the utter truth. She should confront Scotty, she thinks one night, when she's rubbing moisturizer into her skin, contorting her face to make sure the cream gets into the creases and wrinkles. She'd be doing him a favor, stopping him before he shoplifts at the grocery store. She could reassure him that she won't tell his parents 
that it will be another secret between the two of them. But does she want him to stop? The thefts are a kind of flattery. She feels, in some unusual way, chosen. Scotty, this peculiar, inscrutable boy, wants to keep these small parts of her for himself. She looks around the apartment, wondering with some excitement what he will take next. He's only a little boy, but he's managed to unsettle her. It has been so very long since she was unsettled. Scotty doesn't always steal something. A week goes by when she notices nothing gone. He comes to the apartment and folds towels fresh from the dryer or helps her wash the windows with Windex and newspaper. He handles his tasks with dutiful seriousness. He sings. He eats around the edges of his toast. During these dry periods, she sometimes places an intriguing object in plain sight, a small porcelain cat no bigger than a walnut, a brightly painted Ukrainian Easter egg a co-worker gave her one year, not realizing that she didn't celebrate the holiday. Scotty doesn't steal the cat, or the egg, or the fancy pen she was given by the Temple Women's Auxiliary to acknowledge all those candy centerpieces she made over the years for various events. That he overlooks these lures tantalizes her. Another week passes during which she experiences a turbulent alertness that is relieved only when she discovers that he's stolen a travel-sized tube of Colgate from the medicine cabinet. The following day, the golf pencil she keeps in the drawer of her credenza is gone. Her last boss gave her a case of them as a joke retirement gift in recognition of her preference for these quirky implements. At her send-off party, he toasted her, saying that she was the brains behind the operation. It was the kind of lift-you-up-to-put-you-down thing that men said to women all the time, the exaggeration implying its opposite. Only in her case, it was true. Her boss was fired six months after she left, unable to manage things without the reminder notes she'd always written with her stubby pencil. And then, one morning, she opens a silverware drawer and discovers that Scotty has stolen the last remaining corn holder that's shaped like an ear of corn. She used to have six sets, but over the years they've met various fates, falling out of the silverware basket and becoming disfigured by the dishwasher heating element, slipping into the narrow crevice where the counter and the refrigerator don't quite meet. Frank loved corn on the cob and always challenged the girls to see who could strip theirs the fastest. He'd get out the typewriter and provide the sound effects. His silliness was the first thing to go once his heart started to give out. Unpredictability took too much out of him. Staring into the drawer at the empty place where the cornholder used to sit, she feels a quiet wrenching. The phone rings. She knows it's Paula, who calls once every two weeks, usually on a weekday before she leaves for work. The hour, 8 a.m., is a warning that the call will be short and dutiful. Evelyn imagines Paula already dressed in her business skirt and jacket, her pale hose, her heels. She's a divorce lawyer with her own practice in Lincoln. Naomi once called excitedly to say that she'd seen an ad for the firm in a city magazine featuring a glamorous shot of Paula. Evelyn pretended to be impressed, although she thought it was a little desperate for a lawyer to advertise like that. How are your spirits, mother, Paula says. She begins every conversation this way, as if she can't imagine her mother's happiness. Fine, Evelyn replies, and yours? I'm about to leave for work, Paula says, starting the timer on the conversation. Paula rarely visits. She has no children, so there isn't that obligation. She's divorced from Darren, whom she shouldn't have married in the first place. Evelyn had hoped that Paula would see what she so clearly saw in the man, the untenable combination of self-regard and self-hatred. You could not fill a hole in a man like that, she told Paula when she announced her engagement. 
Paula leveled her with a look so cool that Evelyn had the feeling that, in that moment, she no longer existed for her daughter. Evelyn has never said anything outright to Paula about the night she failed to check on Frank. On the flight home from Tulsa, she was consumed by anger and she rehearsed versions of her accusation. But when she fit the key into the lock of the door, a different feeling overwhelmed her. Inside, the sofa, the houseplants, the coffee table, they all seemed like imposter versions of the things she'd lived with for decades. The house was silent. She climbed the stairs and slowly opened the door of her bedroom. Her heart was beating fast, which was foolish. She'd given the nurse instructions to call the undertaker even before she boarded the flight back home. There was the perfectly made bed where Frank had so recently lain. She fought the urge to back away, to creep downstairs as quietly as she could and leave the house so that no one would catch her in this life that wasn't, that could not be hers. Behind her, there was a sound. She turned, and there was Paula, peeking through her half-open bedroom door, as if to protect herself from an intruder. It was never easy between them after that. Ruth and Naomi came home for the funeral, but left soon afterward to go back to school. She and Paula did their best to avoid each other. Paula would come home at the end of the day and go directly to her room. At dinner time, she'd say that she wasn't hungry. Evelyn would leave a plate in the oven for her and eat her own meal alone at the kitchen table, hoping that Paula wouldn't change her mind and join her. Any conversation between them, whether it was about the news or Paula's college plans or what dress she wanted Evelyn to make her for her high school graduation, included not talking about that night. The house practically vibrated with Paula's impatience to leave, to get away from her mother as soon as possible. Which was why, not two months after graduation, Evelyn found herself converting that same dress into a wedding gown. Paula, marrying at the courthouse, kissed that sulky boy and then turned toward the small group that had gathered, her expression fiercely triumphant. What are you going to do with your day, mother, Paula says now. It's an innocuous enough question, but still, Evelyn feels pressure to make her life seem meaningful. I've been robbed, she says. What? Mother, what do you mean? I've been robbed, she repeats. It feels good to say it. Wonderful. The shock of the word in her mouth. The truth of it. Oh my God, are you all right? Paula's concern feels sincere, and for a moment, Evelyn wants to come clean, to confess what's been stolen and by whom. But suddenly, she's confused by feeling and she can't speak. It's too much. The missing Kleenex. The corn cob holder. Somehow, if a real thief had come and stolen her television or her jewelry, she would not feel as bewildered as she does now. It's nothing, she says. Just some mail. Mother, mail theft is a federal crime. Did you report it? It's fine, Evelyn says. It's not fine if they stole your social security check. No one stole my social security check. They prey on the elderly, these people. And once they get your social security number, you've got a real problem on your hands. Are you charging by the minute, Evelyn says? Her jaw is growing tense, her disquiet building. What are you talking about? You're not listening to what I'm saying. You just told me you've been robbed. But that's not what she was trying to say at all. I've got to get to work, Mother. Report the theft, please. Evelyn hangs up the phone, feeling a sense of panic. She leaves the apartment and walks down the hall and knocks on the door. After a moment, Scotty's mother answers. Behind her, Scotty and his brother lie on their stomachs on the carpet watching television. Can I help you with something, she says. I need to speak with you, Evelyn says. It's important. All right, the woman says, opening the door further. Boys, turn off the TV. She leads Evelyn into the living room and gestures for her to sit on the couch. The couch is unusually deep, 
and when Evelyn settles, she feels crowded by the soft cushions that envelop her. She suspects that she'll need help getting up. Scotty's mother has taken a chair opposite the couch. She holds her younger boy on her lap. Scotty stands by her side. They watch her, waiting. Evelyn straightens her back and tries to draw herself up, but the couch defeats her. I thought you should know, she said, that certain things have gone missing in my home. I'm sorry to hear that, the woman says. The woman looks genuinely concerned, and Evelyn feels emboldened. Many things, she says. May I ask what is missing, the woman says? Personal items, Evelyn says. She enjoys the power that comes with the ambiguity. I wonder if there have been any other thefts in the building. Maybe you should contact the super. You don't understand, Evelyn says. The only person who comes to my apartment is your son. She glances at Scotty, who betrays nothing, his expression as softly and passive as ever. What are you saying, the woman says, her sympathy disappearing. Are you accusing him of stealing? Ask him, Evelyn says. Ask Scotty. But before the woman can do anything, Scotty leaves the room. A few moments later, he returns holding a shoebox. He sets it on the coffee table. Scotty, what is this, his mother says, alarmed. She lets her younger son slide off her lap, then leans forward and carefully lifts the lid off the box, as if it might contain a bomb. Evelyn struggles to inch forward on the couch until she can see the contents, too. Everything that Scotty stole is there. She feels a small sense of triumph until she notices that Scotty's mother is giving her a strange look, as if she were reconsidering Evelyn and now found her odd, even a little dangerous. The woman picks up one of the Q-tips and drops it back into the box where it falls without a sound. She picks up the pack of Kleenex, looking not at the stolen item, but at Evelyn, as if Evelyn were playing some kind of trick on her, insisting on the value of this box full of trash. Those belong to me, Evelyn says weakly. Scotty's mother puts the Kleenex back into the box, then covers the box with a lid. Scotty, apologize to the lady, she says without much conviction. I'm sorry. There we go, she says. She hands the box to Evelyn, then stands and walks quickly to the door and opens it. Evelyn can feel the woman's impatience as she works to get up from the couch and leaves. As she walks toward her apartment, cradling the box, she feels she's been cheated of something. Her justifiable accusation, the apology, nothing changes the humbling absence she felt when she looked at the space between her deodorant and the dental floss where the toothpaste once lay. Nothing makes up for the unnerving sensation she had when she discovered that the corncob holder was missing and felt as if she were standing once again in that bedroom doorway all those years ago, staring at emptiness. Don't wash your face with soap or you'll dry out your skin. Wear a bra or your breasts will sag. Check on your father. Was there anything you could ever say to another person that would make a difference in the way things turned out? Scotty never returns to her apartment after that. She doesn't expect him, but still, sometimes when she's dusting the television console or hanging her skirts, she stops, thinking she senses him hovering. But there is no wrinkle in the air to alert her to the possibility of an encounter. She distracts herself with activities. She gets tickets to a concert. She attends a volunteer sign-up event at the temple. Over Labor Day weekend, she travels to Omaha to visit Naomi and her grandchildren. One morning in early October, she's standing at the elevator, her car keys in hand. She has a hair appointment and then some errands to run. Scotty's apartment door opens. She feels heat rising up her neck, and then a man and a woman and a teenage girl she doesn't recognize come out and head toward the elevator bank. The man and woman look dressed for office jobs. The girl carries a school bag over her shoulder. 
Evelyn feels as though she'd woken up in the middle of the night from a fraught dream and has forgotten where she is. When they reach the elevator, the adults acknowledge her with nods, then they talk quietly between themselves about who will be home at what time. The girl reminds them that she has practice. The family hesitates to allow Evelyn to enter first, but she turns, instead, to the stairway exit next to the elevator bank and pushes through the door. The stairwell is cold and too brightly lit. Her hand, grasping the rail, looks pale and bloodless. Scotty's family must have moved out while she was visiting Naomi. How else could she have missed the moving truck, the boxes, and the furniture? She reaches the landing and pushes the heavy door that opens into the lobby. No one is there. The lobby is furnished with black leather chairs and a glass coffee table, but it's all for show. She's never seen anyone sit in those chairs. The room is immaculate and useless. It frightens her. There was a time after Frank's death when she found herself watching other people. A man dragging a garbage can to the curb, a woman putting coins into a parking meter. Her fixation on them was so intense that often they noticed, but she couldn't help it. She was mystified by the way people went about the simplest tasks, the ones that had once seemed so minor to her as to require no thought, but that she now had to talk herself through, step by step, as if she were a stroke victim who couldn't remember how to use a fork. Once, when Ruth was home from college, she found herself moving a lock of hair out of Ruth's eyes just the way a woman at the post office had done for her daughter. Ruth pulled back and gave Evelyn a funny look, as if she'd registered the inauthenticity of the gesture, which left Evelyn wondering if she'd ever been the kind of mother who did such a thing. She'd been prepared for Frank's death. His decline was slow, the end inevitable. When it finally came, she didn't feel lost the way people often said they did after a tragedy. No, it was that she'd lost herself. She wonders if the person she's been all these years is only a vague approximation of someone she never found again. Scotty will forget what happened. He's seven, after all, and there is so much ahead of him that will consume his attention. If he remembers her at all, it may be years or even decades from now. He'll eat a slice of cinnamon toast and have a vague impression of an old lady or the warmth of a freshly ironed shirt or maybe a slight feeling of regret. But before he can place the memory, something will distract him, and then he'll forget all over again. That was Marissa Silver reading her story, Tiny Meaningless Things. This is her ninth story in the magazine. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Madeleine Tien reads The Cafeteria in the Evening and A Pool in the Rain by Yoko Ogawa, translated from the Japanese by Stephen Snyder. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.